scripture is taken from John 11, verses 1 to 37. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Well, speaking of crying, what are we going to do now that the season of This Is Us has come to an end? For those of you who are fans of the show, uh, perhaps you have the experience of my wife who says at some point during every episode, I can't get through without crying at least once. I came across, I was looking for a picture and I came across this next slide. It says, Jack Pearson, making husbands and fathers look bad every Tuesday night. <laughs> this is a great show. It's a show that uh, follows a number of different families and actually across different generations. And it reminds us of the common experiences of life. There are storylines about birth and struggle and joy and death. In fact, the underlying plot of the show is how the death of an incredible father and husband impacts his family and how they deal with life on the other side. During the season of Seeking Known as Lent, we've been exploring a number of roadblocks that threaten to prevent us from moving forward in faith. As This Is Us reminds us, and perhaps more importantly as John 11 reminds us, losing someone we love dearly can stop us in our tracks. Death is a common experience, and that's why in a show like this, they can look at every different family and how death affects that family. But because death is a common experience, it means that it's our experience. It's the real experience of many people in this room. Some of you in a very fresh way, walking with someone who is in their last days perhaps, having lost a loved one in recent weeks or months. But even if it wasn't recent weeks or months, the fact that you've lost someone close to you in years past or decades past still has effects that linger. And so it's our experience and certainly one of the emotions that we experience along with the death of a loved one is, is pain and is suffering. And I hope that by the end of this morning, we can at least be reminded that in the midst of our experience of pain, there is hope. Not that we won't experience the pain, that we won't suffer um, at the loss of a loved one or the memory of a loss of a loved one, but they would be able to have hope in the face of it. The Russian author Dostoevsky once stood in front of a painting by Hans Holbein called Dead Christ. It's a, an eerie, eerie picture of Christ laid in the tomb and the details of it are, are stark. And he stood facing this painting and he describes how he was faced with the, the absolute finality of death, which convinced him that there must be something more. There's no way that this is how the story ends. And yet he acknowledged in one of his novels, through the words of a character, that some people may lose their faith by looking at that picture. Both extremes. The inevitability of death can either inspire us to faith or it can make our faith sneeze buckle. I read a story of a father who had just found out news that his son had brain damage after already having lost a son, and he cried out, if this is the way it's going to be, then God can go to hell. 
difficult words to hear, as I'm sure that they were difficult for him to utter, but they reveal the significance of this theme in our lives. Death can remind us of something more and greater, but it can also humble us and break us. What we believe about death tends to inform how we experience the death of people in our lives, how we think about our own death, and how we live in the meantime. John chapter 11 begins, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Now this wouldn't be a big deal if we didn't already know what happens next. I mean, if I asked for a show of hands, I think probably every hand would go up if I said how many people have been sick in the last two or three months. Some of you with young children have been I've been sick in multiple times in the last two or three months. Sickness in and of itself is a common experience. So the fact that Lazarus lay sick, well, that's not a big deal. But we know what happens next. We just heard the story read to us by Stephanie. But then again, every illness is a reminder of how fragile life really is. We don't have to think of it that way. In fact, we can make it through most days without ever thinking about death. That is, as long as we keep our eyes closed. If we pay attention to what's going on in the world around us, we can't escape it. I just took a look at the news feed one day last week as I was preparing and read a story about the poisoning of a former Russian spy in the UK. I read about four people, including a young child, who were shot to death in Brooklyn. I read of the death of legendary physician Stephen Hawking. And I even read about a dog suffocating in a carry-on compartment of a United Airlines flight. All kinds of stories, so many headlines. And if I were to open the news this morning, I'd have four new headlines. Death is there. But perhaps the headline that made the news more than any last week was students who left school marching to protest gun violence after the death of 17 of their peers in Parkland, Florida. They walked out of their schools and stood in protest for 17 minutes to commemorate those 17 lives, some of them actually even being punished by their school boards for leaving class. But as much as these students were protesting gun violence, I believe that in many ways they were also protesting death itself. The intrusion of death on the young lives of their peers and teachers. Eugene Peterson writes that strangely, virtually every death, even of the very old, feels like an intrusion and more or less surprises us. Tears and lament give witness to our basic sense that this is wrong and we don't like it one bit. Death provides the fundamental datum that something isn't working the way it was intended accompanied by the feeling that we have every right to expect something other and better. The depth of loss that often surrounds the end of life, well, it demands an explanation. For those who believe in God, it can be God that we protest. God who owes us something other and better. God from whom we demand an explanation. So the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. So how would Jesus respond in their moment of need? And how will he respond in ours? A couple of verses later, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now I just want to pause for a quick logic check here. This is strange if you pay attention to what this says. Jesus loved them, so he stayed where he was. Does that make a whole lot of sense? I mean, just imagine this in your own life. Because I love you, 
I will not fold the laundry. Because I love you, I will ignore your all-caps text messages. Because I love you, I forgot your birthday. Like, this is ridiculous. And yet, this is what Jesus is somehow saying by his action. Because I love you, I will stay where I am for two more days when you need me the most. But this small detail might actually speak quite loudly to our experience of God's inaction. Just when we need God the most, God is absent. There's a little bit of truth to that. In God's own words, through the prophet Isaiah 54, verse 7 to 8, speaking not about death specifically, but speaking to the nation of Israel who had been abandoned into exile, and and they were wondering, where is God in the midst of all of this? And his words are recorded, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Author Walter Brueggemann observes about this passage, between the two lines in each verse, there is scarcely a pause, enough for a comma. That comma of loss and abandonment, however, is defining for many. For many of us, we experience the absence of Jesus when we need him the most. So he told them plainly, after talking with his disciples and having this conversation about sleep and trying to be clever and his disciples not picking up too quickly, he says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. There it is again. That word we've run into time and time again over the last few weeks, believe. Every encounter Jesus has in John's gospel on the way to the cross, every encounter he has, he brings this up. With Nicodemus, believe. With the woman at the well, believe. With the crowds who were offended by his teaching, believe. With the blind man begging at the side of the road, believe. And now here with the sisters who had lost their brother, believe. By the time he had arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Of all the experiences a human being goes through, placing the body of someone you love into the ground must be just about the most difficult. I've had the fortune, I suppose, as a pastor, of only having officiated in six funerals over the years. I've only officiated over one graveside ceremony. And those words that I just read were what I wrote as I was trying to think about what on earth do I say to a family as they stand there beside a grave and and lower the body of their loved one into the ground? What on earth do you say? I was thinking, well, this is just about the hardest thing that you could go through. So Jesus walks up to this family who had just done this very thing. And the first sister he meets on his way into town is Martha. As in the other famous story of these two sisters, Mary chose to stay put. Martha went out to engage Jesus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now many Jews believed in a general resurrection of God's people. That Israel somehow would be raised to new life. But Jesus' response links faith in him in this life to life with him 
in the next. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus wasn't saying the same old thing here. This was not what they had taught or what they believed. He was saying something new. And he went on to ask Martha a question. And I believe it's a question that he asks each and every one of us. Do you believe this? That I'm the resurrection in the life. That the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Again, those words, believe. But can words so simply remove a roadblock as strong as death? Well, Jesus has these interactions with Martha, and then she goes back and she tells her sister, Mary, it's time to get up and and go meet Jesus here. So Mary runs out to meet him. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Words that probably a number of us have thought or maybe even said out loud. Jesus follows Mary to the tomb and we're told that along the way he wept. There are all kinds of reasons we can imagine for his weeping, but being human, I imagine that he was genuinely sad for the loss of a friend. We're told that Lazarus was someone he loved. He was close with this family. Sad also for these sisters who had lost their brother, for all of the the neighbors and friends who were mourning the loss of a loved one, and perhaps sad because of the state of death itself that this ever had to be part of our creation. And as Jesus is weeping and making his way to the tomb, the onlookers ask the question, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This question ties us back to last week's reading where Jesus did heal a man born blind. And they were hoping that he would apply the same power to Lazarus in his failing health. I mean, Jesus just healed a guy who's... who's blind from birth, certainly when our brother gets sick, he'll come and and he'll heal him and, and everything will be fine. And how many times have we found ourselves in a similar situation, expecting God to act as he has at another time, in another situation? We read a story in scripture or we hear a story that someone else tells about a miracle that's happened in their life or some amazing encounter they've had with God and we're like, well, if he acted like then, like that then, why doesn't he act like that now? If he, could, if he could do it for them, why not for me? But Jesus didn't keep Lazarus from dying. So is that the end of it then? Now the truth is that our reading stopped short. And I was thinking about it and how certainly for most people here this morning, you kind of know where this is going. But I thought for some people, you don't know where this is going. If church is kind of new for you, if Christianity is a little foreign for you, then as far as you're concerned, Jesus missed an opportunity here. And the story ends with Jesus and sisters and neighbors and extended family weeping at the side of a tomb where a man has laid dead for four days. But the story continues. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Uh, But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. 
And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. That's a better ending to the story. So here we meet Lazarus, the original walking dead. When it comes to the end of life, whether our own or that of someone we love, how does recentering ourselves in the story of Jesus help us navigate our way? Think of the question that the onlookers asked. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You see, last week's roadblock was removed. The roadblock of of a blindness that kept this man from following Jesus, from living a full life. Jesus removes it through this healing. That's part of what we see in that story. But remember, there was more to it. It was as if Jesus was saying, when I healed the blind man, I wanted you all to see the need you have to be healed from your own blindness. That's where that story went. That's where that chapter ended. And it's as if he is saying, now I have raised a man who was dead and buried in a tomb. And I want you to see the need you all have to be raised from your own death. Philip Yancey writes that even the greatest of miracles do not resolve the problems of this earth. All people who find physical healing eventually die. Well, Jesus chose to display God's power by raising Lazarus from the dead. But even Lazarus' life on earth would come to an end one day. So God made sure he addressed what happens after death in a more permanent sense. Now, during this season of Lent, we follow the journey of Jesus toward the cross. And so we'll face this theme of death on Good Friday in a, in a couple of short weeks. But what's on the other side of Good Friday? And there's part of me, as I was preparing this week, I thought, oh, shoot, why did I pick this story? We're supposed to wait until Easter weekend to talk about death. And, and we're supposed to wait to talk about, I don't even want to say it, the resurrection. Like, we're supposed to wait. We're supposed to journey and, and follow the, along with Jesus and with his followers and these people. And what are they experiencing and thinking? But my goodness, you can't tell the story of Lazarus without telling the story of Jesus. They are tied together. This was intentional. This was not Jesus just allowing someone to die unnecessarily and then saying, oh shoot, I messed up. I better raise him to impress people. Think back to that verse, because he loved them, he stayed where he was two more days. But the rest of that verse says that And then he decided to go to Jerusalem. And if you remember what the disciples said, they're like, Jesus, wait a second. They're after you in Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen if you go there. So now the sentence makes more sense, doesn't it? Because he loved them. He stayed where he was two days and decided to go to Jerusalem. Because he loved them, he went to Jerusalem, where he knew that he would be arrested and crucified and laid in the tomb of his own. Lazarus' resurrection points us toward Jesus' own resurrection. 
that the same power of God that Jesus called on to raise Lazarus from the dead was effective in raising Christ from the dead. In the New Testament, Paul writes to a number of churches, and I'll read just three different excerpts from his various letters, as he's trying to explain to these people living around the Mediterranean the significance of what happened on that weekend. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 to 20, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits being a harvest turn, this word to indicate that, that there's a lot more to come. You pick the first heads of grain, yes, we've got a good harvest on the way. Jesus was the first of many to be raised. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Here's a sleep language again. Jesus used this. It confused the disciples. But he used it to illustrate that death is not the final state. Death is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the chapter. And then there's that word again, believe. Believe. And Paul here is writing almost word for word the the very words that Jesus spoke in conversation with Martha. Do you believe? A story God tells about death doesn't spring from an emotional need to hang on to loved ones. So we got to come up with some kind of a story here to make sense of this. But it rises along with Jesus from an actual grave in actual history. Far from being wishful thinking, Christian belief in life after death is a response to what God has already done in Jesus. It's a posture taken in response to the fact that Jesus' resurrection has shown us that death does not get the final say, a promise that we too can rise again. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. This tent of a body is destroyed. We get a new building that's a lot more sturdy and lasting. Maybe it's three weeks ago that the news broke about the death of Billy Graham. He lived a long life and certainly leaves a significant legacy behind. And there was a quote that began circulating, something he had written years earlier. He says, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I will have fallen asleep. I will have taken a nap on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. This is not the end of the story. But of course, having an accurate perspective doesn't eliminate the pain of the experience. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew Lazarus would rise, and yet he still wept. He had an accurate perspective. He knew that he was just sleeping. He knew what the power of his father was able to accomplish, and yet he wept. Because that's what death does to us. And not just physical death either. Eugene Peterson writes that we die 10,000 deaths before we are buried. 
We experience death in so many ways in our lives. Not only when a loved one dies, but when a dream dies, when our health dies, when relationships die, when innocence dies, when faith dies, or at least almost dies. So how does a story about resurrection speak to us in the here and now? I want to read an excerpt that comes from a story that I seem to have lost. I've lost my excerpt. Well, that's too bad, because it was a good one. Found it. It comes from a story written by Charles Dickens in the book, The Old Curiosity Shop. It's the story of a, of a young girl. She's the heroine of the novel. Um, and unfortunately, she passes away at the end. Now, don't get mad at me for spoiling it. He wrote the book like 150 years ago. It's, you've had time. <laughs> so little Nell dies, and it's this, this terrible scene, and, and he begins to write about the, the funeral procession and the people from the town gathering around to mourn the, the loss of this young girl. And I want to read what Dickens writes about the funeral procession. Along the crowded path they bore her now, pure as the newly fallen snow that covered it, whose day on earth had been as fleeting. Under the porch where she had sat when heaven in its mercy brought her to that peaceful spot, she passed again, and the old church received her in its quiet shade. They carried her to one old nook where she had many and many a time sat musing and laid their burden softly on the pavement. The light streamed on it through the colored window, a window where the boughs of trees were ever rustling in the summer and where the birds sang sweetly all day long. With every breath of air that stirred among those branches in the sunshine, some trembling, changing light would fall upon her grave. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Many a young hand dropped in its little wreath. Many a stifled sob was heard. Some, and they were not a few, knelt down. All were sincere and truthful in their sorrow. They saw the vault covered and the stone fixed down. Then, when the dusk of evening had come on, and not a sound disturbed the sacred stillness of the place, when the bright moon poured in her light on tomb and monument, on pillar, wall, and arch, and most of all, it seemed to them, upon her quiet grave, in that calm time, when outward things and inward thoughts teem with assurances of immortality, and worldly hopes and fears are humbled in the dust before them, then, with tranquil and submissive hearts, they turned away and left the child with God. Oh, it is hard to take to heart the lesson that such deaths will teach, but let no man reject it, for it is one that all must learn and is a mighty universal truth. When death strikes down the innocent and young, for every fragile form from which he lets the panting spirit free, a hundred virtues rise in shapes of mercy, charity, and love to walk the world and bless it. Of every tear that soaring mortals shed on such green graves, some good is born, some gentler nature comes. In the destroyer's steps, there spring up bright creations that defy his power, and his dark path becomes a way of light to heaven. Instead of causing us 
to despair of life or turn from God. Death can remind us of the incredible value of life and of the very real presence of God in the midst of it all. When faith breaks through the roadblock of death, it not only assures us that our life will continue beyond the grave, but also gives shape to our lives in the here and now. I'll close with the words of the Catholic writer Carlo Corretto. I think about death, he writes. I try to see it as life, as wood needed for the fire, as a field in which a treasure is hidden, as a book to be opened, as a seed which has to flower, as a secret which I have to know, as a crossing which I have to make. I invite you to stand and we'll close in prayer this morning. Lord, this morning we sang the words of a familiar hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And by faith we want to say those words now, after thinking and reflecting on one of life's most harrowing themes, great is your faithfulness to us. When we doubt it, when we don't feel it, we know that your presence is with us, inviting us to live life to its fullest here and now, and reminding us that life goes on beyond death. Eternal life starts now when we believe in you, when we believe that you are who you said you are, when we believe that you have died and risen again for us. That life begins now, and it goes beyond even our most mortal enemy of death. But we're reminded that death does not have the final say, that is not where the chapter ends, and that is not where our story will end by faith. So God, remind us of this. We ask that you will comfort us as we reflect upon the significant weight and pain that death brings with it, but that you would also give us joy and hope as we look forward to you finishing the story that you've started to write. We pray these things and ask that your spirit go with us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we do each week, we'll take time to chat to talk about this morning's theme. I've written some questions to get the conversation going, and I invite you to join us in the gym. If you haven't been here before, you can find that by walking through the lobby, and there are tables where you can sit. No set seats, so just dive in and enjoy some conversation. We'll formally wrap up our time together at 11 o'clock.